0: The Women of Ill Repute, with your hosts, Wendy Mesley and Maureen Holloway. Wendy. Yeah, hi. Hi. (laughs) There are two kinds of people in the world, I proclaim.
1: Surely, surely not.
0: No, there are two kinds of people in the world. Those who believe there are two kinds of people in the world. And those who say surely not, and don't call me surely, but okay, this is admittedly a silly start to a serious episode with a real serious journalist.
1: But I'm you're the comedian and I've sort of marketed myself as a very serious journalist. Are you saying I'm not a serious? <laughs> no, no,
0: no, no, no. You're very serious. Hello. How many awards and accolades do you, you have like a credenza full of hardware? You could open a hardware store. But if I'm not mistaken, and, you know, with all due respect, you have never covered a war zone. You've never put your life on the line. You've never been shot at on Parliament Hill. Not that you should, but it's a different kind of journalism.
1: Yeah, so many of my colleagues went that path, and I never had the guts or the grit to do it, or or maybe I kind of need my special pillow. (laughs) (laughs) It's true, sad but true. (laughs) That's okay. That's okay.
0: But back to the two kinds of people, there are those that, they say, run to danger and those who run away. And today's guest, for a number of reasons, runs towards it. And we're going to talk about that, I hope. Lindsay Adario is Well, she's a dream for this podcast for Women of Ill Repute. She's a photojournalist. She's covered the biggest conflicts and humanitarian crises of the past two decades. Afghanistan, Libya, Darfur, Yemen, Syria, Somalia. There's a lot of conflicts and most recently Ukraine. And she has covered it close up in the center of conflict.
1: Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I mean, the stuff from Ukraine recently just got, I don't know, it's, she's very, very special. You've seen her work everywhere. She's been working for the New York Times. National Geographic. Her photos, well, they're just, I don't know, they're different. They're beautiful. They're also heartbreaking. She's won all kinds of awards. She's won a Pulitzer, a MacArthur Fellowship. (laughs) Maybe she's a genius. Two Emmy nominations. And she currently has this exhibition at the School of Visual Arts in New York, which kind of encapsulates a big, big part of her career.
0: She's written a memoir called It's What I Do, which answers a lot of preliminary questions, and also a stunning collection of photographs called Of Love and War.
1: Yeah, I was hoping when I read the book, I was really hoping that she could just take pictures and not write. But <laughs> unfortunately for me, she can write.
0: Oh, she's a terrific writer.
1: Yeah. And she's, she's serious. She's, she's been kidnapped. Not that this makes her special, but she has. She's been kidnapped twice. She's been threatened. She was in a serious car crash. She's got like a plate in her shoulder. She's also a wife and a mother. A lot of stuff.
0: So much to ask her in so little time, but we're so excited and admittedly awestruck to welcome Lindsay Adario. Hello. Hi. Wendy's got her uh, special pillow, and we're just thrilled to have you here. And I just finished your book. And I uh, couldn't sleep. And I wonder, writing the book, did it bring you back to, I mean, you're still in the thick of it, but to be able to put it in perspective, do you ever say to yourself, what the hell am I doing?
2: Yeah, a lot. I mean, I I would say in Libya, when I was face down in the dirt with a gun to my head, sort of staring down the barrel of a Kalashnikov begging for my life, I was saying, what the hell am I doing? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think there are many times where I'm saying, what the hell am I doing? I think it often happens when I'm very close to death or under fire. Those are sort of the moments. But I, you know, I I always have to answer that question for myself and say that I really believe in this work. And I and I think that photographs and good journalism can change the world. So, yeah,
1: there's so much to talk about, you know, about about why you risk it and is it worth the risk and all of that. I was really struck, I guess, going back to look at your photos after reading a piece that was written about Robert Capa and how comparing your photographs to him. And I'm like, your message is so different. Like, I guess in the old days, maybe there was nobility in war. That's what he kind of reflected, that there was good and there was bad. But looking at your photos, it's it's so much about the bad and everybody's bad. I mean, is there is there a message in your stuff? I don't know. I mean, I that article was
2: a little complicated for me because I think you can't just choose sort of a selection of photographs that play into what you're trying to write. I mean, I think I definitely photograph more women's issues and a lot of like the civilian casualties. I think that at that time, it was a lot of just frontline pictures. And Kappa, of course, was a huge inspiration for me and any other war photographer. And sort of revered in our community. But I think, you know, there's nuance in every war. It's not good versus evil. I do think Ukraine, it's the clearest we've seen, you know, where we have a sovereign country that has been invaded by Russia and civilians are being deliberately targeted. And, you know, we're watching Russia now sort of decimate the infrastructure. And, you know, I think that we're seeing a lot of the good versus evil. But, there's always nuance. And there's a lot of gray area in war as in life.
0: Lindsay, when you hear about something, when when war was declared on Ukraine, is your first instinct to say, I got to go? Well, I mean,
2: actually, the New York Times sort of beat me to it in the case of the Ukraine war, because they got in touch with me, I think, in December, asking me if, you know, if there is going to be a war in Ukraine, would you like to cover it for us? And And I hadn't covered a conflict for the New York Times in years because of various reasons. But I immediately said yes, but not thinking that there actually would be a war. Like, I really didn't think that Russia would go in. And so I said yes. And then they were able to get military credentials and all the stuff that makes it essential to cover a conflict. And then in February, in early February, they called me and said, "Okay, go And I went on the 14th of February and 10 days later, I was I was at the line of contact. I was in eastern Ukraine and Donbass and covering the war that had been going on already for eight years. And then Russia invaded on the 24th and so went immediately to Kiev. But I think I was ready to cover it. I think it was historically a very important war to cover. I mean, it's Europe and it's, you know, on everyone's doorstep. It's also a situation where you have Putin going into a sovereign country and who's to say he'll stop at Ukraine and won't just keep going, you know. So I think it was important on many levels.
1: One of the, the things that there was that photo of that mother with the children who had, was she was a civilian. It was so obvious she was a civilian. And I think you've said, I mean, maybe I'm looking too deeply for a message in all of your photos, but in that one, I mean, you have said that you want to get beyond stereotypes that you want to. So basically with that photo, you proved that when the Russian forces say that they're not targeting civilians, they're targeting civilians. How important is that to you?
2: Well, I mean, that was a situation that was, I mean, there were many levels to that. I mean, I was actually in that attack. So. I think, you know, I went to a known civilian evacuation route that morning where everybody knew, the Russians knew, the Ukrainians knew that that was a bridge in Irpin to Kiev where civilians were evacuating for safety. It was women, children, injured, elderly, you know, on that bridge. So that was a bridge that in, you know, the known sort of, it should not be targeted. So I think... I went there to cover the the civilians evacuating, and within minutes, Russian artillery started targeting a position off in the distance. I assumed that they were targeting a Ukrainian military position because they knew it was a civilian evacuation route. And within minutes, the next round came closer, and the third round landed next to us, literally distant between us and the family. So I witnessed the deliberate targeting. It wasn't speculation. It wasn't, oh, maybe they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. No, those rounds were bracketed onto a civilian evacuation route. And I witnessed the entire thing. I was sprayed with gravel. I mean, I was in that attack. And so I think that was the difference between, you know, when Putin says we're not targeting civilians. Well, I mean, that's just not true.
0: What do you do with your fear? I mean, just from reading your book, what you do requires incredible focus and toughness, but you strike me as a very feeling person. So what do you do with it? Oh, I mean,
2: God, I wish I wasn't so feeling. I mean, I cry, I I run, I get scared. I mean, I'm very, very human. I am not like robotic in these situations. I mean, there is I didn't realize that Andrey Dubchak, who is the Ukrainian journalist I've been covering the war alongside. He's been translating for me and we've been working together, but he was rolling. I mean, he was actually shooting video of that entire attack and you can hear me. I'm like, shi, 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 because I was terrified. And I also thought that this Ukrainian soldier that I had been photographing and that we had been kind of shielding me every time a round would come close. I thought he was killed in that attack because he sort of disappeared in a poof of dust when the round came in. But I think, you know, I have to acknowledge that fear. It's obviously very normal, but I have to figure out, I have to process it and think of why am I feeling this? Where is that coming from? Is it based on PTSD, you know, past trauma, or is it based on a reality that like, this is very dangerous and I have to figure out how to survive? So there's a lot of things that I'm processing in those moments.
1: Many years ago, you were, he was kind of famous, made massive headlines in, in North America. You and three others were, were kidnapped when you were in, in Libya. And reading your book, you talk about Anthony Shadid and how he had said at the time that I'm never going to do this again. This is too much. And you said, you know, people tend to, they get into scary situations and they say, I'm going to get it. But you believed him. But he went back and he died
2: I mean, Anthony never said he wouldn't do it again. I think it was Steve Farrell. Was it? Yeah. Anthony, me and Tyler, were all sort of like, this is horrible. And we're putting our loved ones through a horrific, you know, we knew that we were causing people to suffer with our disappearance. But Anthony was never like, I'm not going to do this anymore. Nor, nor, you know, Tyler, the three of us. But Steve Farrell was pretty resolute. And he actually kept his word. He he did drop out of conflict journalism. So I think Anthony could have been any one of us, Tyler or me, you know, and we have gone back and Anthony was killed or he died in Syria. He wasn't killed. He had an asthma attack that led him to die. But Tyler and I have gone back repeatedly. And we've both had many close calls since
1: then. How do you deal with that? Like, your husband is a is a journalist. Do you share these stories? Like how do you how do you compartmentalize things? I mean, my
2: husband, yes, was a journalist for sixteen years for Reuters. He very much knows what I do and understands the nature of this work. So he's incredibly supportive. But I think in the moment, I don't tell him how dangerous the things are to, you know, I mean, like, I kind of pretend like everything's fine. And then I hope he doesn't see a video of attack that I'm in. You know? But then I don't, you know, I also don't expect the New York
0: Times to run it on the homepage with like, my name <laughs> what about your son? I mean, that's one thing to protect your husband.
2: Well, my children, I have a three-year-old and a 10-year-old. The three-year-old has no idea. Like, you know, he's just, uh, you know, for all he knows, the nanny is his mother because, you know, I mean, I basically haven't been home in a year. So I think, you know, the three-year-old is adorable and very happy. And, and you know, the important thing for him is that he feels loved and he's, you know. But the 10-year-old is just is Lucas and he's just starting to realize what I do for a living, you know. And I remember when I came back from the first sort of six-week tour in Ukraine and I went directly to school to pick him up and his friends were like, oh, she's the mom who was kidnapped. Were you kidnapped again? And I was like, (laughs) oh, God, like, this is not good, you know? So, you know, I'm like the mom who's been kidnapped. Lucas is, he internalizes a lot. And so I try to sort of, you know, talk to him about where I've been and where I'm going, but not terrify him, you know, not tell him so much that he's, you know, scared every time I get on a plane. So, I think I have to let him lead the way in terms of how much he wants to know right now, because he's 10.
0: Yeah, it's a great age, too, because they're open to everything and haven't developed. uh, Well, they will. But the attitude eventually comes. Oh, he's got attitude. (laughs) Let's go back to your parents. Uh, Your parents were hairdressers in a million years. Would two hairdressers ever think that they would raise someone to do what you do? I mean, poor them.
2: (laughs) You know, we were raised in a really great, eccentric, open household where it was all about like, love and fun and, you know, tap into your creative talent and do what makes you happy. Don't worry about money, money will come when you're when you're doing what you love. And so, you know, we were not at all an intellectual family growing up. I think we had like, just a set of encyclopedias in our house. I mean, we didn't get the newspaper, we didn't have any books, you know, but it was all about kind of life and living life and loving the people around you and accepting people around you, and especially people who lived on kind of the margins of society. And so it was definitely not the sort of household that you think would produce a war photographer.
0: (laughs) No, (laughs) (laughs) definitely not. Are they still alive? Both your parents?
2: Yes. No one in my family ever dies, really. (laughs) (laughs) That's cool. One grandmother just died at 107. Whoa. (laughs) The other one died at 99. My dad just retired at 80. And my mom is still running around like she's 20 and she's 83. So, I mean, yeah, my family is definitely sort of lively,
0: I would say. (laughs) Keep that in mind when you're under fire. Just say though, you know, we, we have long lifespans in this family. We hope.
2: To be fair, no one ran around the front lines of Ukraine, but you
1: know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it does sort of explain the invincibility of everything that you think you're gonna you're gonna live forever. And also that you could just get pregnant, you could just like drop one at any time. That I found it sounded fascinating that you wrote about you didn't feel the biological clock ticking. Cause it was just like, you know. That's what my husband says, is that he passed me in the hallway and I was pregnant. I said, it'll take years. And I was 40, but, uh, you know, work, work to deadline.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, first of all, you know, I never, in my profession, there are so few women. There are so few women that are mothers and there are much less married. So I think it's like, it's a profession that does not lend itself to home life because, You know, we go, we're away often, we're away for long stretches. There are a lot of men in my profession who have wives at home with children, but there are very few women with husbands at home raising the kids. And I was very lucky to marry my husband, Paul, who is incredibly supportive and who is an amazing father and who basically raises the kids, you know? And so I think I just didn't expect that I would ever be able to have that life. I assumed I chose a path that would mean I could never have a family.
1: I have a number of friends who are foreign correspondents who did have the grit and the guts to do versions of what you do. But I was like, uh, some of them have been lucky, but a lot of them aren't. And uh, I I was really struck by what you just said, that, you know, whether you're in Baghdad or wherever, that everybody is sort of doing this very exciting job, but all the men have wives or steady girlfriends back at home waiting for them. And the women are, they're just, waiting, hoping that they're going to meet somebody who will be supportive. So I guess some things aren't changing. Like when I grew up, it was Anne Medina. I, she's like probably a, a name for older people in Canada. But back then, that was it. There was no women. And now now there's a lot. But it sounds like some things haven't changed. There are many
2: women reporters, but there aren't that many war photographers. You know, there's Heidi Levine, Paula Bronstein, Carol Guzzi. Nicole Tong. I mean, I can kind of name them on one or two hands. And so there were no role models for me of mothers. When I got pregnant, I was terrified. You know, I was like, how am I going to, like, my life's over, my career's over, how am I going to raise a child and be able to go do this work? And so, because there were very few people to look up to. I mean, Heidi Levine had children, but very few people have kids.
1: Hey there. Uh, just so you know, Mo and I are not just the queens of podcasting. I'm not sure we're even that, but do go on. We're not part-time cowgirls.
0: We just made that up. But we are writers. We're writers. Wendy and I write a newsletter on Substack. It's a weekly roundup of thoughts and experiences, sometimes serious, often not.
1: Yeah, you're pretty funny. You, you write about falling down a lot. Uh, you write about your dog. I do. You write about sex and
0: politics and COVID. All very, very serious things. We have a few thousand subscribers, both free and paid. And you could be one of them if you'd like. Just go to Substack.com and look us up by name or go to our website at womenofillrepute.com and sign up there. We'd love to meet you there.
1: And now, back (laughs) to being the queens of podcasting.
0: Yeah, sure. (laughs) The women of ill repute at the same token, you're very aware of being a woman, and this is relevant. I wouldn't normally go, you're five one or five you're you're a smaller person. so being female and smaller in your book and your stories, you're very aware of not wanting to slow anyone down or not wanting to make your stature and your your femaleness an impediment to anybody, which is not something the guys have to worry right.
2: About. no, I mean, I constantly, especially you know during the Iraq war and the Afghan war when i was doing a lot of military embeds with the US military and the marines and you know i still train at least an hour a day and at that point i was training all the time because i never wanted to be that person who was like i can't scale this wall i can't do a 7 hour patrol with flat jacket and all my camera gear you know i always wanted to be able to keep up because that is part of my job you know so I have to be physically fit. I'll be 49 next week and I'm going to be, you know, and I still am training all the time.
1: So can you still do all that stuff? Can you like climb over the walls and do 7RX and no special pillow? (laughs) (laughs)
2: Yeah, of course I can.
1: (laughs) Here's the thing. After I had my son
2: Lucas 10 years ago, I had major back problems. I had three herniated discs. My back was going out all the time. I was in a huge car accident in Pakistan in 2009 that I was thrown out of a car on a highway. So I don't think that help matters. But I think just the years of, you know, 20 years of doing this work and, you know, climbing walls and jumping out of Blackhawks and doing all this stuff. So yeah, it took a toll on my back. But weirdly, and this seems like an advertisement for Pilates, I started doing reformer Pilates. I was doing working out all the time, but That exercise has kind of changed my life and made my core really strong. And the ability, my back goes out a lot less, like, you know, it'll go out once a year as opposed to every three months. And so that's been a real game changer in terms of being able to go on assignment and not living in constant fear that I won't be able to walk one morning.
0: Wendy just did her first Pilates class this morning.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's
0: inspired now, right?
2: It's incredible. No, I mean, the reformer on the machine is like, it's, it's incredible.
0: We both want to know, because we're women, we want to know what's in your go bag. What do you have to have? Yeah. Do you
1: still have one like on the side?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Ukraine is like the go bag is like always at the door. I have coffee. I carry Starbucks, the Via Packs, the Instant Packs, because, you know, I, it's just too complicated to use grounds. I carry an immersion heater and a cup. So I can always make a cup of coffee if I have electricity. I carry protein bars. So those vary, but usually ones that are high in protein, low in sugar. Granola bars don't really do it for me because I get hungry like an hour later. There are a few bottles of water. I carry medication. So I carry my back meds in case my back does go out. So that's like naproxen, paracetamol, ibuprofen. I carry Cipro, so an antibiotic in case I get injured you know, all sorts of painkiller, cold medicine, and then a change of clothes. One change of clothes. Well, in a go bag, like if I'm under shelling and I have to run to a shelter, yeah, I'll have like usually just a change of clothes, a sweater, a warm jacket. What? Else? Oh, my saline. I have contacts, which is super annoying.
1: Yeah, it was weird when you got kidnapped and you were talking about getting a, a coffee headache. <laughs> I like, mean, yeah. of all
2: the yes. things. I know. And I'm thinking about getting LASIK finally, because it's just so, it's really stressful having to worry about like, can I get saline when I'm in the middle of a war zone?
0: (laughs) It does seem kind of, of all the things. I need saline solution. (laughs) I
2: know. It's ridiculous. And I always have my running shoes so I can always work out.
1: I just want to ask you about I guess, you know, as a, as a journalist and you're like a super journalist, I mean, and but now it's not, we're, we're not trusted. Nobody likes us. We're all, it's all this fake news and nobody trusts anybody. There's no such thing as the truth. So don't even bother. I mean, that must be like a dagger to the heart to somebody who's actually put their life on the line to try and tell a story. I mean, luckily the places,
2: you know, I don't work in America that much. I was surprised when I started working here a few years ago, and I've done a few assignments, that feeling of like fake news and don't trust journalists really persists here. I think in Ukraine and a lot of the... I was in Somalia last week covering what will be declared likely as a famine for National Geographic. A lot of those places, people still really profoundly appreciate the work of journalists and they really understand that journalists provide a window for the rest of the world onto their heartache and so i think you know luckily i'm i'm still working in places where journalists are respected and where our work is useful and and you know seen as sort of the vehicle to telling people stories so can you change that in the states <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I when I was here, I was very surprised. And also I covered elections. I was very surprised about the anger and the hostility because I've been working abroad for 22 years, you know, so I really it's a different attitude more. I mean, by and large, it's a different attitude toward journalists.
0: I want to ask you about the art of what you do, the actual photography Your photos, your pictures are so beautiful and so beautifully lit and so poetic, and you're in the middle of the most heinous situation. Do you have a moment? Do you know, or do you're just shooting, 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 or do you all of a sudden go, oh my God, this is it? I've got it.
2: I mean, I think, yes, to answer your question in short, yes, I know when I'm photographing something and I'm in a moment that is powerful. I think digital photography allows me to shoot too much. Like, I'll just keep shooting. Whereas when I, I started on film 25 years ago, and I used to be in the dark room, and I was much more judicious about how much I shot and when I stopped shooting. Now, I just kind of keep shooting because you you don't know if that amazing moment will evolve into another amazing moment. And so I generally, if security allows, I will just keep shooting. But I know, I mean, I feel it. I feel it everywhere when I'm shooting something that's like pretty incredible. And a lot of people, we talked about the exhibition or you, you said in the, in your introduction, I have this mid-career retrospective at the School of Visual Arts and I have, you know, there are about 150 works there. And, and the takeaway is very sort of people are very confused because the images are very tough, but aesthetically they have a beauty to them. And that was, You know, that's something I try to do because I'm trying to bring people into the image. You know, I'm trying to make a viewer stop in his or her tracks and ask questions and get engaged with the image. And I find that that's easier to do if the images have beautiful light or a composition that's compelling, because then you'll ask questions.
0: You recently brought Hillary Clinton around on a tour of the exhibition, which had to be odd. And cool and weird because she was, you know, secretary of state during much of this. So I'm wondering what her take was on that.
2: I mean, it was amazing. She was so engaged and so focused and weirdly had read my book. And so was like reciting to me the backstories of some of the pictures, which was so surreal. She was amazing. And yeah, she was Secretary of State. She was Secretary of State when I was kidnapped in Libya. Yeah, it was amazing for me to take her around and to look at how she responded and interacted with the photographs. Because I think, you know, different people respond to different sections differently. And I kept I was so worried about, you know, she's very busy. And I didn't want to take too much time. And I kept trying to like, usher her like through a section quickly, and be like, oh, you don't need to see that. she was like, no, no, no. And she would like go back and look at every single photograph. And yeah, it was amazing.
1: Is it weird to be feted? I mean, a friend of mine, Anna, Anna Maria Tremonti was, you know, she was a foreign, cor- she was a political correspondent and then she became a foreign correspondent. She's about 15 years older than you. And so she covered like the war in Bosnia and so on. And, and so many of the stories that you tell are similar to hers, including she just got engaged at 65 and when, when her husband-to-be said, will you marry me? She's like, really? 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 You, you want to marry me? You're now married happily. You got two kids. You're a freaking genius.
2: I mean, you can ask my husband how happy he is. I think he sort of regrets marrying me. He's sort of like, are you ever coming home? <laughs>
1: well, yeah, did he think you were going to change? Anyway, I just, I just wonder whether it's weird to be fetid.
2: You know, I am so hard on myself. I never feel fed. I am constantly just beating myself up for the fact that I'm not in Ukraine right now, that I'm not doing better work, that I'm, you know, I I missed bucha. You know, I I it's just like the it's constant. And so I don't really feel fed. I feel like I feel appreciative that people are responding to the work and that they go and see it. And that, yes, Hillary Clinton, that was incredible. And Katie Couric was there and Tina Brown. And I'm so honored because more than anything, I'm honored because I want people to engage with the stories and especially people in positions of power who can actually do something for those people, you know? But I never personally feel fetid. You know, I feel like I'm constantly just like beating myself up for what I'm not doing.
1: Constantly on the move. So where are you going next?
2: I'm going back to Ukraine on Monday.
0: <laughs> wow. Mid-career. Keep that in mind. You said that let's all, this is a mid-career retrospective. You're not even halfway done, I'm sure. And sadly, may never well be done because in a recent interview, I think it was the Vanity Fair piece, speaking of being fetted, where they asked you about war and you said you don't think it'll ever be, we will never be without it. No,
2: I don't. I think, sadly, it's human nature. I mean, you know, I think the war and what's interesting, I think, is that as climate change gets worse, I think wars will get worse, because I think there will be more and more conflict over resources and water and land and harvestable land. And so, you know, even in Somalia, you have a real confluence of conflict and climate. And I think, you know, we will probably see that more and more as, you know, climate change gets worse.
1: Yeah. Well, when you solve the journalism thing, if you could solve climate change while you're, while you're at it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Certainly can document it. That's not hard to do. Lindsay Adario, I can't tell you how honored we, I know you don't feel fetid, but we feel honored to have spoken to you. And how long is your exhibit on it, SVA?
2: It was just extended to December 10th and it's Chelsea. So if you're in New York,
1: go. Well, Maureen is intimidated talking to authors. I'm like so intimidated talking to you. I just, I just think that what, what you've done and what you're doing is, is amazing. And, and we had someone on a little while ago who sort of made fun of, of women for talking about the work-life balance thing all the time, which of course...
0: She's a lawyer. <laughs>
1: Yeah. So she's a lawyer and, and, but you know, there are other things in life and men don't have to justify their balance all the time. So you're managing to make a real difference and to have a family and to have love. And like, there's no, there's no perfect balance.
2: Oh, there's no perfect balance. It's really, I mean, everything I attribute to my husband, because without him, I I couldn't have any of that. And I probably wouldn't have had a family because I just wouldn't have thought it would be possible. So you know, it's really him who, who should take the credit for
1: all of that. Well, we'll interview him next when we do men, men of ill repute.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Lindsay, please take this with respect. Stay safe, please. As best as you can.
1: Yeah. Lovely to talk to you. Thank you. Bye Lindsay.
0: Thanks for your time. Thank you. Take care.
1: Wow. Yeah. I was a little tongue tied. I was like, Oh, there's Lindsay. There's Lindsay. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. I know. I like that. (laughs) Yeah. And and she's so beautiful. And
0: she's so lovely.
1: She seems so together. And uh, how can you be that together? Like, I I did want to ask her because I, you know, like Anna Maria went through some stuff. She's just done a podcast about being like beaten almost to a pulp.
0: I know. I didn't know she was engaged, too. That's adorable.
1: Yeah, at an advanced age. But I mean, she talks in her podcast about how she became a foreign correspondent, partly because she was able to deal with the conflict in her life by dealing with other people who had been through conflict. And Anderson Cooper.
0: Yes, I thought of him too.
1: Yeah, so he lost his brother when he was 10 and his dad when he was 21. And he said that he became a foreign correspondent at the beginning because he wanted to be with other people who had suffered grief. So I wanted to ask her about that. But she just seems, I don't know, she seems so together. And she's from a family that's kind of together. And
0: Yeah, she comes from a pretty normal place. Well, I mean, her parents were hairdressers. Her father came out and ran off with his boyfriend. I mean, there are certain things that are not, you know, orthodox. But on the whole, yeah, very creative, loosey-goosey kind of the fact that she had no newspapers. I mean, wasn't politically aware. And we didn't point this out in the interview. She has no formal training. She doesn't have a degree. She just like, she picked up a camera and she started as a stringer. And it was literally another photographer who showed her how to use a zoom lens properly. And so she is truly self-made in every way, but you can see why. I mean, obviously the guts are there, but the, the innate intelligence and perhaps mostly the compassion that she brings to her photography. I meant to ask her, and I may ask her agent, if we can put some of her photographs up on the, our website, because, you know, as they say, a picture tells a thousand words. So we'll try to put that up there.
1: Oh, that'd be good. I was hoping she wouldn't be able to write. I uh, like a, the double, triple threat thing, but it was a beautiful book, too, and photography. <laughs>
0: So, she could be a foreign correspondent, not just visually, but I mean, anyway, she can do whatever she can do. But I hope that she, uh, her three year old gets to know her because <laughs> she's well worth knowing. So, that's Lindsay Adario. And on to the next The Women of Ill Repute with Wendy Mesley and Maureen Holloway. Available
1: on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at Women of Produced
2: and distributed by The Sound Off Media Company.